Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're talking about choices. I wanted to start out, Lisa, by talking about kind of the current environment that we're seeing around choice. So I'm thinking about decisions to get vaccinated and how that's largely been the conversation has centered, especially with unvaccinated people around the fact that they should have a choice. I'm wondering like how you think of that conversation where freedom gets kind of weaponized and any limitations to freedom are uh, an affront. I mean, I hate choice as a frame. I hate it. I loathe it. I get really ranty about it in the reproductive justice spaces because when the decision was made to frame, you know, abortion, abortion rights in particular, but also contraception as choice, both after Roe and, and before Griswold, I really feel like that was a tragic error that exposed the limitations of white feminist thinking about freedom because choice is actually not analogous to freedom choice is analogous to purchase power choice is analogous to property so it seems to me that choice is in so far as it came out of as it was an important meme in the second wave of feminism it exposes the logic of purchase power. Like we're shopping for abortion. We're shopping for casual sex. It's, it's what makes the conservative argument against abortion so much about dilettantism because it, it actually is. Choice is not about freedom. And I think that for white folks, they want to preserve as much choice as possible while also preserving the power to limit other people's choices and calling that whatever they want to call it, justice or freedom or whatever. So I loathe, cho- I loathe choice as, you know, as some sort of index of freedom. I don't think that they have that, the kind of relationship that liberals want them to have at all. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting in this like cultural context because a lot of the people who are anti-mask and who um, use choice as a frame to not have to wear masks or who are anti-vax are also those who are support the new abortion limitations. So like, it's hard to understand what choices should be acceptable and what shouldn't. And I, there's a, a, a conflict in a lot of those rhetorics. Like I think of someone I used to work with who was anti-mask And we worked in a manufacturing facility and he had to show up to work in a uniform every day, which was completely fine with him. But like that is something he wasn't able to choose what he was wearing, you know, 60 percent of his waking hours. But wearing a mask was an affront. So it's like, which choices are you willing to give up? I mean, honestly, I think that the mask became a flashpoint because it muffled white noise, white sound, white voice. So I think the mask became a flashpoint in a way that dress codes haven't precisely because they had the potential to decrease the rhetorical power of whiteness. So I, that does not surprise me, but the, my body, my choice thing is specious. You know, white people don't want accountability for their choices, right? So it's like, I want to choose to whatever, not get vaccinated, but I don't want any responsibility. Like, can I sue you for negligence? 
if you willfully infect it, right? Because there's none of that's been litigated. And so that I think is where choice exposes its underbelly as a completely unreliable tool of ethics or of law, quite frankly, you know? Uh, It's interesting to think about choice also in the context of what's happening with labor, for example, too. So like the way that choice is not to return to certain workplaces, in particular restaurants, um, are being handled and talked about. So like it's an acceptable choice, right, to not return to a workplace that's emotionally or physically abusive. Um, but how that choice gets read, like that's not an acceptable choice. Like if you have the opportunity to take a job, you should take it or you're lazy. What choices are considered acceptable? And that that's why choice is a weak argument, you know, because certain choices get read as acceptable. And if you have make the choice to have an abortion, you're a baby killer. Like, so it's like, you're yes, make that choice, but you should feel really bad about it. It should be something that, you know, you have a lot of guilt about. Same thing with not returning to working, you know, at restaurants or shitty minimum wage jobs. Like, sure, make that choice, but you're a bad person if you do. So, like, how choice gets framed as something that's like a character flaw in some cases, to me, is really interesting. And it gets to your point of that it doesn't work in the context of, like, political motivation or framing. No, I think we are much better off reading choice as taste. I chose this shirt to signal that I have a particular kind of taste in whatever, right? Goth or, you know, 90s Laura Ashley or whatever, right? You're showing taste. I think choice is fundamentally about taste and it's about virtual signaling belonging to groups or class status. I don't think that choice is about legitimate political exercise of power. And I think that the fact that choice is proliferating as a rationale for the anti-maskers, anti-vaxxer people. It has always been fundamentally about tyranny and about the tyranny of a very limited set of ideas, ideals, and ethics. So I think when we see choice, pure choice, it should be a red flag that that the political sphere is shrinking around that particular topic. And it's shrinking because folks are asserting choice as a way of shutting down the legitimate intellectual inquiry, or but especially ethical inquiry into consequences. So my question around like how much choice, especially with the mask issue people have centers on, I think people misunderstand how much choice factors into like the decisions they make on a day-to-day basis. I think in particular with consumption of social media, <laughs> You get fed when you're on Facebook, basically an algorithm of content that's been chosen for you, right? So you don't actually really get to choose unless you spend a lot of time and energy curating your feed, like what you actually consume. And so people think that they have more agency over how they're spending their time than they do and over their opinions or like where they fall in terms of making choices because so much of our content now is determined by an algorithm that's been written by multi-billion dollar tech companies. But also, I mean, choice is already always overdetermined, 
right? I mean, it's more limited than anyone perceives, even though humans are creatures of habit. Very rarely prefer novelty to the familiar, especially in the West, especially in the U.S. In this particular political moment, though, I'm really interested in the decision fatigue that a lot of us have, especially people with children, managing risk constantly all the time, the decision fatigue about, you know, how and where to shift their whatever energies in all the ways, like their labor energies or their their affective energies or sexual energies, whatever. And then like what is being called a supply chain collapse. I'm really interested in the relationship between those two because I feel like there is an opportunity to challenge the proliferation of quote unquote choices, especially insofar as their consumer choices. And I also think that the supply chain issue is a reason for corporations to not hire back people at higher wages and manufactured. And so that's a paranoid reading, obviously, of the labor market in light of the way that COVID has changed business. But I think perhaps a useful paranoid reading that suggests that there is an opportunity to um, norm people away from choice as the major space where they find their own personal agency. So I think like the Theranos stuff and the Facebook you know, testimony and the quote unquote supply chain class and the COVID fatigue and all of that has produced a potentially different interior subjectivity that I find very interesting. I love that you mentioned agency because I think like what people really want when they, when they think about choice is like, they're really talking about agency like nobody actually wants like unlimited shirts to choose from. Like there's a Goldilocks amount of choices <laughs> that you can make. And you people who pay hundreds of dollars to eat at a restaurant aren't ordering off the menu. Like they have a tasting menu that's been chosen for them. <laughs> and you know, like the Theranos thing is interesting because like, some of these like tech leaders you know, claim to wear the same thing every day because they don't have the bandwidth to make a choice and they just need to take that off their plate because they're so busy changing the future and building like a blood machine that doesn't actually fucking work. So it's really interesting. There's like a class spectrum of how much choice you have. And like, it's interesting that choices become fewer like on both sides of the spectrum like choices limited by like lack of means and then as you have more and more means basically when you become rich you pay other people to make choices for you because uh it becomes taxing the difference is a difference in agency like the ability to be able to make choices and have someone else do it for you is different than not having a choice in the first place I think that's right. I, you know, I think that the, I don't know, certainly middle-aged consumer of internet stuff broadly conceived, who is paying attention to politics also broadly conceived, is going through a potential realignment of their attitudes maybe not beliefs, but attitudes certainly about 
the kind of informational ecosystem and social ecosystem that they're in. I think the pandemic has exposed um, how weak a lot of people's networks are for support. I don't mean network in like the operationalized human capital way. I mean really in the life sustaining casual encounters and the deep encounters and you know touch encounters um, that people need to sustain them. And I do think that this is a moment where choice was not enough. It wasn't enough to just sue self-soothe with Amazon deliveries to get through this prolonged, you know, period. Um, and I say that because I do think that folks are thinking differently about where to spend their money. So, you know, I buy a lot of books. I'm, I've got a book fetish as, as a reader and as, you know, as gifts and as like love and whatever. I want to support independent businesses, right? Particularly booksellers as like what loves the community and this is centers for democratic participation and connection and whatever right and it necessitates consumption and production but for me like that's the thing that I think is valuable and worthy and there has been so much conversation about books and book culture and libraries and and independent booksellers since the pandemic began in ways that are so much more inclusive and sensible and political than at any other period that I can, and as somebody who thinks about this a lot, can recall in the last hundred years in American life, you know, and it's it's anti-conservative. It's about the flowering of those opportunities, and in some sense, that feels like choice. Choices to read different ideas, choices to wear to shop, right? That is an essential part of managerialism. And on the other hand. I think that it could be a canary in the coal mine in changing attitudes about what's valuable in terms of, you know, spaces for conversations about ethics and ideas or ethics and consumption. That's really interesting, um, especially when you compare shopping decisions in the context that you're describing, making choices to shop locally and comparing that with the decision to shift shopping behavior to Amazon <laughs> exclusively. And it's, it's interesting because I think there are decisions that happen like at large companies that revolve around limiting choices in some respects. Amazon is part of a larger machine that operates so well in part because people don't have the capacity or space to choose to shop elsewhere. Like they're coming home after a 12 hour shift and they just need this thing real quick and they need uh, a bunch of choices at their fingertips and they need it to show up at their door and they don't have the time or energy. Um, They don't have the choice to go shop because they've got to get six hours of sleep and then take their kids to school. And I mean, the way that we have structured our economy has limited choices so much. And part of me thinks it's intentional, uh, like big companies suppress wages so that (laughs) we're scrambling and don't have a lot of choices about where we can shop. Like the less we pay people, the more they have to shop at Walmart and can't choose to shop at other retailers. 
ditto for Amazon. So limiting choices by truncating available time, work bleeding into our lives more and more, partially because everything is more expensive and we have to work more hours to afford it. It's so funny because I remember a conversation I had with my then 10 year old daughter, like when the pandemic started and we were driving across town for something. And she's like, what do you think is one major thing that's going to happen as a result of the pandemic? And I was like, we were driving by the mall and I was like, malls are dead. And she, for whatever reason, we weren't, we're not like mall people. It's not the eighties where people hang out at the mall. Right. So she's been in a mall, but it's not like a part of her corner. She lost her mind. And it, it, she could not even comprehend that that was a real, and I said it just sort of like, ca- like casual academic driving in the car, juggling things, right? Like, you know, this is what I think. Like I was giving the opinion to like another adult person, right? So I was, you know, I heard her tell everybody on the phone that, that Lisa says that the malls are going to die. Do you think that the malls are going to die? And so I was like, you know, malls have a history and here, you know, here are all these photographs of dead malls. And she, it blew her mind. Like the notion of social decay had never occurred to her, which is like such a white middle-class thing. Right. And it's also perhaps at her age or whatever, but certainly the financial stability. And so the, the sensibility that not shopping in the community is an indicator of like social distress is I think a fascinating irony of this moment as it pertains to choice, right? Because I would much rather go to the farmer's market or whatever and buy local produce and wander around and drink my tea and, you know, have my kid play and, you know, dodge the dogs than go to the grocery store and then dodge all the people who aren't in masks. So, you know, there is like this irony about shopping as a community activity under capital that I think we are probably losing. Although there is ambivalence about that, right? And then you see these resurgences of like shop local, you know, defeat Amazon sort of stuff, especially with the booksellers that I find just endlessly fascinating. I don't, I don't shop enough for clothes to know if it's the same with boutiques for clothes. Um, where they're like, fuck Amazon, you know, buy pants here. I don't, I don't shop enough to know about that, but I would be very curious to know. Or if there are other sectors of the economy where people are like, we're going to buy our specialty chocolate here. I don't know. You yeah. Know, for books, as, as my fetish object, that's, there's very clearly ambivalence about it. And that's good because Amazon started as a book, you know, depository basically. Yeah. I mean, I think the places that survive are the ones that do cultivate community. I mean, that's what local bookstores have to do. They have to sell coffee. They have to sell tea, beer, wine and have book clubs and events. Um, It's not just a space. Like if people are just going to run in and run out and grab a book, they're probably just going to do it on Amazon. Right. A lot of like the brick and mortar spaces are transitioning to be more open and tactile and, uh, more like experiential because like if you're just going to do a quick run, like what's the point of even going into a store? So uh, there's like a massive rethinking of like, what is a retail space and like, when does it exist and how, when does it survive? That's, <laughs> That's really, really interesting. I think it'd be interesting too, as more places flirt with 
uh, four day work weeks. Because, you know, I can absolutely see the shifting labor fields producing demands for a reduced work week. And, like, I really fundamentally believe that we're in the middle of a labor, a titanic labor shift. And I'm not saying that that won't catalyze a bunch of hostility and violence. It probably will. But at the end of the day, people do are feeling trapped because of the pandemic and because of capital. And I do think that that creates different conditions to discuss choice in ways that for sure implicate labor. And I think flirting with the four day work week will be transformative. And I, I actually think that we'll see it in the huge fortune 10 companies first. One thing that's popped up on my feed that um, the algorithm fed to me it have been articles about this phenomenon called revenge bedtime procrastination. Have you heard about this? So like it's people who stay up till three, 4am because they work long hours and they feel like they don't have much agency or control. So they just stay up all night almost and then show up to work like tired as hell because they don't feel like they have control over their time. And like just staying up late is a way where they can like reclaim some of that time. Um, I like so, it. foot Yeah. And then you're garbage at yeah, your job sabotage. because exactly. Um, Micro Yeah. Men. But I mean, th- there has to be a give and take, you know, like if workplaces don't accommodate like human need like some days I just need a nap like period that's what my body wants some days I'm just not operating like some days I have great ideas and I can like produce a ton of labor and some days my ideas are trash and like (laughs) I can't focus like it and I don't get to choose when that happens you know what I mean like so the human body isn't meant to just produce a consistent amount of labor all of the time So the more that you let people flex, the more that you get to choose, you know, I work really well from like six to two and after like 3 PM, my productivity is 30% of what it is around 8 AM. So the more that you let people have choices about when they work and there's a lot of constraints to that. Like, you know, my best time is 6 AM. Not many restaurants are open at 6 AM. So like, can you really work at restaurants if you're on point when no one wants to eat? No, like you can't choose when people want to eat at your restaurant. There are a lot of jobs where the choices are limited by when the people want to be there. So the service hospitality stuff. Um, But people overall should be more respectful of the fact that people are flawed and that they like aren't always on point. So there's this like service expectation where people don't recognize Mm -hmm. that you may not be on point, that you may have worked 60 hours. Mm -hmm. I think more empathy in the service space happens when people have more choices in their workplaces too. So when they get to flex, when they have more compassion from their employers, then they can start to (laughs) deliver that grace down because they realize the impact. They're like, oh yeah, it was bullshit that I had to like sit at a fucking desk with overhead lights, (laughs) you know, blaring in like complete silence for, or whatever the soul sucking conditions at many offices people realize oh okay that was bs and then they start to see like those conditions in other places too right i also just think people need to think of themselves as not just laborers there is a sense in which the 
force of capitalism is forever shaping us to think about choice as one that is only forever economic. I do want to return to that idea of the right to refuse, because I think that comes into play with these discussions around labor. Like when you get to say no, people feel like they don't have the choice to say no. That happens a lot in workplaces where it's like, you know, if I say no to this request, I'm considered to have a bad attitude or not a team player or, you know, I literally can't or I'll get fired. Um, and in the case of like service jobs, it's like, well, I won't get a tip if I say no. I won't get a tip if I like tell this guy not to touch my ass, um, you know, and how that's like determined people's decisions, you know, like I think about the the women who testified in the Harvey Weinstein trials and how like even though they in some cases consented they didn't feel like saying no was an option and that's why I think you know when Simone Biles dipped out of the Olympics it was a big deal and I loved the conversation in support of that like in support of the choice to say no because I think like we should have more models for people who say no and who set boundaries um I think we should do a better job in general of taking no as an answer. It's funny. I've had a couple of um, weird encounters on the Twitter machine uh, in the last year or so um, where somebody asked, you know, a, a junior faculty member was like, what is your average schwan How How often do you write? And I'm just like casually honest, like, you know, when there's not a mass extinction, you know, threatening, you know, the community, I write most days. And there's a conversation about labor that's happening in higher ed about productivity. And the pushback is like, you're too productive. And I'm like, yeah, but I am not doing this because I'm being, I don't feel like I'm being made to do this. It's, I am quite happy writing every day. And if I weren't, I would not do it. <laughs> I would refuse to do this this particular work, the work of writing and idea generation. If I sucked at it or I didn't want to do it or I felt like I could, like I, if I absolutely did not want to do it, I would not do it. But I feel like there, you know, there is um, ambivalence about the choices to be quote unquote productive that are very telling about the way that exercising the choice of refusal is virtue signaling or it is i don't know some other kind of jockeying about you know moral fortitude when really it's just like i would rather write than do any other work i would rather do politics than do any other work so i want to do them all the time because they are where my passion is and i feel like um, a lot of jobs don't have the capacity for passion and so that it becomes, or people don't, you know, it's both and probably, but there's no sensibility about the fact that one can still find pleasure, you know, under, in late capital and in the middle of the mass extinction. So there is a relationship between pleasure and choice and pleasure and refuse. I love to refuse. I mean, I withhold labor regularly, but I don't want to withhold it from the writing. That's the part that jazzes me the most, but also I have the most job security as a full professor. So, you know, it, the pressure to produce the writing is no longer on me, which changes the nature of the relationship to the work. I think it's the pressure of capitalism that really 
erodes people's ability to find passionate outlets um, as it pertains to labor. They can perhaps find them in other places. I hear that other people invest their time in leisure activities, you know, whatever. But I, you know, it seems to me that the relationship between choice and refusal is an important one and is one that we don't think about nearly as much as we should. I think part of that is that in the case of work, uh, even when the choice to refuse is present, like it feels like a trap almost like, and part of that is like the competitiveness, like there's a lack of cooperation or organizing that happens that like allows actual choices to take. As an example, I think about a former workplace that made a choice seem available and then (laughs) kind of like pulled the rug out from under. So basically the roads were icy one weekend last year and my workplace was like, it's up to you if you want to come in or not. Um, And then like the next week, once everyone was kind of back, they gave a shout out to everyone who still came in, even though they put their cars at risk. The company doesn't pay for car insurance. You know what I mean? Yeah. Basically, they were like, it's your choice if you want to come in or not. When the responsible choice is to say, don't fucking drive on the ice. It's yeah. dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> as many people as cannot be in dangerous situations as possible, like that's what you should do. Mm-hmm. So in that case, the company shouldn't have left the choice up. So, you know, in some cases, choices can be manipulative right. because <laughs> there are like certain contexts in which like, if there's not an even playing field, certain people have advantages. So for example, if you can afford to have your insurance premium be an extra $50 a month because you get in a wreck on the way to work, some people can't afford that. Some people can't. I, there's different things that factor into the ability when there's yeah, choices on the table. Choice is an index of privilege and it's an index of proximity to, to property. That's because it's not about freedom. It is an index entirely of power. and I I think that's absolutely right, that there is um, a factor of manipulation. There was a great thread that was about the, the female complaint, basically. This woman was like, uh, all my friends right now are in these horribly abusive relationships that are shitty, and they're just like, I'm so glad you don't beat me as much as the last guy. And of course, it's like the female complaint about heterosexuality and the perpetual concern about domestic violence and all that stuff is true. But the thread was about women being like, yeah, they think that they're making a good choice when the bar is so low and the choices are all actually pretty terrible. But at the end of the day, the underlying discursive resistance from the folks who are posting on the thread were like, yeah, there are no good choices, right? Like we're, we're fundamentally producing shitty humans. And so for me... If the problem is that we're producing shitty humans in our families, in our churches, it means that the question can't be about choice. It must be about freedom. And but but people are too politically mature, immature to like have that conversation. But that's really where the conversation needs to be. Like, how do we get free? Yeah, I mean, we solve that with collaboration. You know, we solve yeah. that with oh, intimacy. intimacy. <laughs> we we have strategies to solve it, right? Yeah. But choice is not the answer. We don't need 42 kinds of teachers.